Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, part of the Sermon on the Mount. We're in a series of studies through the Sermon on the Mount. Hear the word of God. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. Father, we turn our attention to your word with great thanksgiving to you for it. Where would we be without the Bible? We thank you, Father, for it, for its truth, because it is your word. We thank you for how it makes known to us your grace in Christ. Father, as we study this portion of it, we pray for your help. We pray for the light that only your Holy Spirit can give. We pray that you would sanctify us by the truth of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have in my hand here a pocket New Testament. This is a misleading book. It's not misleading because of what's in it. It contains the New Testament. It contains the Word of God, which is truth itself. It's misleading for what is not in it. This book is missing two-thirds of the Bible. Now, what does that say? Well, it seems to imply, at least on a very low level, that somehow the Old Testament is maybe not quite as important as the New. That maybe somehow we can get along okay without the Old Testament. Now, it might imply at, at... Best, maybe, that the Old Testament is unnecessary when it comes to the end of the day. Or at worst, that somehow the Old Testament is irrelevant and we can easily dispense with it. Now you're thinking, well, you're reading too much into it, and, and maybe so. Obviously, I have one. Pocket New Testament's okay. They're convenient, smaller, easy to carry. Uh, and if I had to do with one or the other, I think I'd want the New Testament. But the fact is, we don't. But this does raise questions. What is the Christian living in the early 21st century, what is the Christian's relationship to the Old Testament? I think most of you would agree that you would find the New Testament easier than the Old Testament. One, because it's not as big. Two, because what it deals with seems more familiar than the Old Testament. And in many ways, the Old Testament is a little more difficult book for us to get our minds around. But what is our relationship to the Old Testament? What about the things that it teaches uh, to us today? Some Christians seem to act as if there were no Old Testament. The Bible began with uh, Matthew 1. Others seem to act as if they had not heard there is a New Testament. Uh, still seem to be caught in the Old Testament. 
Well, how is the Old Testament to relate to the Christian today? What are we to think of it? What does it have to do with living the Christian life in the year 2007? Well, Jesus' words here in the passage that we're looking at this morning help us with that. They give us light uh, as to what we have to do with the Old Testament, what it has to do with us. This is a passage that, while it falls somewhat in the middle of the chapter, serves as an introduction to what is to come. If you know the Sermon on the Mount, know Matthew chapter 5, you know that the rest of the chapter is taken up with six instances where Jesus expounds the Old Testament law. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you is the formula that he follows. Well, before he gets into those details, into those specifics, Jesus gives something of a preface to it, to his thinking about the law in general before he begins to take up particular details about it. And so as we look at this passage, Jesus teaches us, first of all, about his own relationship to the Old Testament. What does he have to do with the Old Testament? What does the Old Testament have to do with him? So first, his own, Christ's relationship to the Old Testament. And then he goes on to teach about the Christian's relationship to the Old Testament. What does it have to do with us? Obviously, Christ's coming changes things. Well, Jesus addresses, what does it change? What's happened now that he has come? And then what does that have to do with you and me so far as the Old Testament is concerned? Well, let's look then at what he says. First of all, in verses 17 and 18, uh, Jesus addresses the question of his own relationship to the Old Testament. Let's look at what he says here in the first place. We're going to pass over 17, come back to it. Let's go to verse 18, which really seems to set the principle here. He says, For truly I say to you, And uh, you you probably know that when Jesus says that, it's a way of emphasizing. It's a way of verbally underlining what he's saying uh, so that the importance of it is emphasized. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Wow. Wow. First thing that Jesus does is to affirm the Old Testament. He refers in verse 17 to the law and the prophets. Uh, Here he speaks specifically of the law, uh, singling that out uh, from the Old Testament. The Old Testament could be thought of as the law, it was referred to as the law, which would basically be uh, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, and the rest generally are loosely considered as the prophets. I mean, we think of that, of course, as the major and minor prophets, but they would also lump other writings in the, uh, in the Old Testament under that heading as well. So the law and the prophets essentially would refer to the Old Testament as a whole. And Jesus says here specifically with reference to the law, heaven and earth will not pass away, not at Nyota or not, will not pass from the law until all is accomplished, until heaven and earth pass away. Well, what is Jesus saying here? Well, he's quite emphatic. Not, not an iota, uh, not a dot. What's he referring to there? Well, he's saying not just the, 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 the law generally considered, but even down to the details, even down to the specifics, it will not pass away. It will not go away. Now, the iota uh, was the um, uh, Greek, the little Greek I, tiny little letter, like an I, um, the ESV translates it the dot. We might think of it as the dot on the eye. Uh, the words that uh, Matthew actually refers to in Greek 
probably were the Hebrew Yod, since we're talking about the Old Testament, uh, just a little little comma or apostrophe looking letter, basically had a yeah, like, a, like our Y sound, uh, or a tittle. Uh, the word he uses here is the, is the word actually for a horn, but it was also used to what we would refer to as a seraph. You know, if you're familiar with type, uh, typography, with the characters and letters, uh, they'll have little projections coming off of them. Uh, that uh, you can see. We also have sans serif letters that don't have the little projections, but perhaps the most well-known uh, font, Times New Roman, has uh, the little projections coming off. Well, that's what Jesus is referring to here. He's saying not the smallest letter, not even the tiny little parts coming off the letter, which in Hebrew helps to distinguish some letters from others. Uh, not even the little, tiniest little part is going to disappear. And what is he saying? Well, he's emphasizing that the law, not just generally considered, but down to the detail, is permanent. It is abiding. You see, Jesus affirms that until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Um, or until heaven and earth pass away, as he puts it earlier, basically the return of Christ, the end of time. Uh, these things are in place. Uh, Jesus affirms their abiding validity. Now, that raises some questions. Let's look now. Jesus not only affirms it. In verse 17, he says that he fulfills it. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Well, the very fact that he said that seems to imply that maybe some people were, were thinking that. Maybe some people were thinking, well, you know, maybe he's come to set a new order in place. He's doing away with the law and the prophets. And there may be reasons that people thought that. Even fairly early on in his ministry, Jesus had some scuffles with the scribes and Pharisees over his position on the Sabbath. You know, he'd heal a man. They'd get upset. Or when his disciples were eating some grain that they picked, the, the, the scribes and Pharisees would get upset. See, your disciples don't keep the Sabbath. And, um, and Jesus, not only in the, the, the behavior on the Sabbath, which may have caused some controversy, obviously did, but even the way he spoke might have given rise to the idea that maybe he was here to abolish the law and the prophets and start something radically new. After all, Jesus says, verse 18, I say to you. And he goes on to speak in that way through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. No scribe ever taught that way. No prophet even taught that way. The prophets in the Old Testament never said, I say to you. They would say, thus says the Lord. But Jesus says, truly, I say to you. And so this new tone of authority, this divine, truly divine authority in his teaching may have given rise that he was here to abolish the law and the prophets and set in order something radically and completely new. Jesus says, no, that's not the case at all. They were not to misunderstand his actions on the Sabbath, which was not a breaking of the law, but a breaking of the traditions of the scribes and Pharisees. We'll get into that. Uh, but he's come to fulfill. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Well, how does Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? Well, let's look at each. How does Jesus fulfill the law? Well, as you read through, obviously going out beyond the bounds of our passage here, uh, Jesus fulfilled the law in completing its purpose. And Jesus came to complete the purpose of the law. What was the law given? Well, the scriptures teach us that the law was given because of transgressions. It was given because of sin. And the law was never given 
as a way that we somehow attain favor with God. In fact, quite the opposite. The law was given to expose our sin. Uh, Remember, uh, Abraham uh, received a promise from God some 400 years before the law was ever given. The law serves to expose our sin. Well, why does it do that? It exposes our sin to drive us back upon the grace of God in Christ, as the New Testament revealed. And so Christ completes or or fulfills the purpose of the law in that, as we read in in Galatians and other places, Christ or Romans, Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. Not end in the sense of the, the termination of it, but end, in the Greek word telos, the, the goal, that to which it is heading. Uh, without Christ coming, the law essentially would be left without the thing to which it's pointing. And so when Jesus comes, he completes the purpose of the law in that the law's purpose is to point to him, and now he has come and he completes its purpose. Well, he also fulfills it, not only completing its purpose, but keeping the demands of the law. Uh, we read in Galatians 4 that Christ was born under the law. Jesus lived under the law. The only difference between you and uh, and, uh, and and Jesus was that you and I have sinned. Jesus lived under the law perfectly, without sinning, without violating it, without breaking it at any point. And so we, Jesus talks about fulfilling the law. He did so in that he kept its demands. In other words, he obeyed it perfectly. Well, Jesus also fulfilled the law in that he satisfied the judgments of the law. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus' active obedience consisted of his daily obedience to the law. His passive obedience consisted in his yielding himself over to the cross to be crucified. Uh, A man declared innocent, even by Pilate, and yet crucified as the sin-bearer, as the Lamb of God. And so he fulfills here the judgments, satisfy the judgments of the law that the law called for against those who have violated it. And so Jesus fulfilled the law in, in these ways. He, he completed the purpose of the law, pointing to him. He also kept the demands of the law, obeying it perfectly. He satisfied the judgments of the law, fulfilling the punishment it called for, also for you and for me, so that in God's grace, he, uh, he suffered the judgments of the law in our place. Well, what about the prophets? Well, Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament, fulfilled the direct prophecies. Um, we just uh, celebrated Christmas and the amazing number of prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus' birth. You think of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where it speaks of his being, the Messiah's being born in Bethlehem. Well, Jesus obviously had nothing to do, uh, humanly speaking, with, his, with where he was born. And yet he was born exactly where the scriptures said that he would be. Uh, other direct prophecies like Psalm 22 or uh, Isaiah 53 that speak of the sufferings and the death of the Lord Jesus even down to specifics uh, such as his clothes uh, clothes being uh, bargained for, cast lots over, those kinds of things that took place at his crucifixion. But Christ also fulfilled the indirect prophecies. Think of the whole system of sacrifices. Think of all of the types and symbols that we find in the Old Testament that also found their fulfillment in the life, death, the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so Christ says here, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to keep it, to bring it to a completion, uh, to do what it pointed toward, to fulfill the law completely. Uh, Matthew, by the way, takes great delight, uh, since he wrote primarily with uh, Jewish readers in mind, uh, to emphasize the fulfillment of prophecies, a passage we looked at recently, Matthew 1, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. That was very important to Matthew, to show the fulfillment of prophecies in the life and ministry of Jesus, because he was writing to try to convince Jewish people that Jesus was, in fact, their Messiah. So the relationship of Christ to the Old Testament, he affirms it in the strongest language. He fulfills it through his own life, ministry, death, resurrection. But now what does it have to do with you and me? Well, Jesus goes on to talk about that in verses 19 and 20, the relationship of the Christian to the Old Testament. Uh, A lot that could be said here, a lot of detail we could go into, but let's just look at, at the two verses here and what it is that Jesus says in this passage. First of all, the, uh, the Old Testament requires of the Christian, in verse 19, a careful obedience. Verse 19, Jesus says, Therefore, since what he said so far is true, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This calls for a careful obedience. We dare not approach God's law and say, well, you know, murder is a biggie. Don't want to kill anybody. But coveting, you know, who's going to know? It's not going to hurt anybody. Small commandment. It's okay if you break that one every now and then. Absolutely not. It's all God's law. Uh, we may think of some as bigger, more important than others, and in fact, some sin is more heinous, more wicked than others, obviously, uh, and we'll get into this in more detail in the, in the rest of this chapter. Some, some sins committed I, do harm others more than, uh, than other sins. Murder does harm someone more than hating them does. Uh, however, what Jesus is teaching here is that we are not to think of God's law in terms of some being more important and should be obeyed and some not as important, and it's okay to take those lightly. You know, we tend to do that with our laws. We wouldn't want to murder somebody, but how many of us laugh as we drive by the 55-mile-an-hour signs on you know, the interstate going through Atlanta? You know, it's a great joke. Um, but not so with God's law. We dare not treat it in that way. Now, this leaves a big question. When Jesus says those who relax the law are those who teach them, do them and teach them, being great, which laws is he talking about? Well, we want to be careful here because Jesus doesn't make this distinction. But in light of Scripture as a whole, I think it's helpful to think in some historical categories about God's law. Uh, If you would like further uh, study on this, you can look up chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which actually addresses these three categories, and and sometimes it's hard to draw the line, and sometimes the boundaries can be a little bit fuzzy, but I think it is accurate to think of God's law in terms of these three categories. One category is God's moral law, and you could say that actually all the laws are moral laws in the sense that it's always moral to do what God said to do, but those that pertain, we might say, to personal holiness, to personal conduct, 
uh, in our interactions with each other, summarized by the Ten Commandments. Other laws would fall into the category of ceremonial. These would be laws having to do with the, the worship of Israel, the whole sacrificial system that took place, the laws pertaining to the tabernacle, later the temple. Um, other laws fall into the category of civil or judicial, and these were laws that had to do with the governance of Old Testament Israel as a nation, as a civic state uh, here on earth, and laws that had to do with uh, punishment for sins, uh, the structure of their government, uh, how it was all to work, how justice was to be obtained, would fall into the category of civil or judicial law. Now, how do those affect us today? Well, I think it's important to divide them in those categories because they apply to us differently. Uh, in the first place, the ceremonial law is still binding but has been fulfilled in Christ. That's why you didn't bring a sheep with you today. That's why you didn't bring a couple of birds or, or a goat or bull uh, to come and, and slaughter here in front of everybody, and we're very happy for that. Uh, Jesus himself was the spotless Lamb of God without blemish and dying on the cross made forever obsolete any further animal sacrifices. Now, the need for a death to satisfy sin for sin is still in place. The animals didn't actually accomplish that, but they depicted that, the justice, the death that sin required, but Jesus was the one who actually secured our atonement. He was the one to whom all those animals pointed. The principle is still binding. It's just that it has been fulfilled, completed in Christ. What about the civil or judicial law? A lot of discussion, a lot of writing on that in Reformed circles. Uh, however, our Westminster Confession of Faith says, and I think accurately, that those laws are no longer binding with the passing away of that nation-state of Israel in the Old Testament. We, if we wanted a particular date, we might say when Jerusalem was taken and the temple destroyed in the year A.D. 70. Uh, and those, those laws no longer bind on us except so far as principles of general equity apply. In other words, except insofar as they demonstrate principles of, of real justice, of real righteousness. We live under the laws of the United States of America. We do not live under the laws of Old Testament Israel. Now, we could get into a big discussion about that and how all of that applies to us, but again, I think our confession is right when it says that those laws as such ceased with the nation-state of Israel. What about the moral law? Well, the moral law still is binding upon us, and yet I would say that it too has been fulfilled in Christ insofar as our salvation is concerned. However, that still reflects to us how God would have us as his people live. It still teaches us about God's own character, and it is incumbent upon us to live in obedience to the moral law of God. And therefore, verse 19, relaxing uh, God's laws, he says those who do this and teach others to do it will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But if you do them and teach them, you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, a careful obedience. We should know God's law. We should be careful to obey it. We should never presume on God's grace. Well, it's okay if I don't because God will forgive me. What a misunderstanding of grace. 
Well, that's what Jesus teaches, that we are to, in response to his law, which we find in the Old Testament, to exhibit a careful obedience. But it's not only that. We need a superior obedience. Look at verse 20. For I tell you, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, his audience would have gasped. You could hear them, (gasps) you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Why would they have been shocked? Because in their minds, the scribes and Pharisees were the picture of righteousness. Jesus just closed the door. Unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, nobody can be saved. Well, is that what Jesus is saying? Yes, you need a righteousness that exceeds theirs. Well, they had all the laws numbered. They had all the prohibitions numbered. So meticulous, so careful. How can we exceed that? Well, it's very simple, really. If the righteousness is coming from here, it exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Because, as you know, Jesus condemned them on more than one occasion for their righteousness being a merely formal, merely outward exhibition to win the applause of men. Yes, they were extremely meticulous, on the outside. But Jesus said their hearts were all wrong. Their hearts were rotted and ugly and evil in God's sight. Now, to give you an example that not only demonstrates what Jesus is talking about here, but that of diminishing God's law, uh, turn with me over to Mark, Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. Jesus says that, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? He's talking here to the scribes and Pharisees. These people, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And Jesus, this is Mark 7, verse 9. Jesus said, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, notice the contrast. God says, but you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have had gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And that's just one example. He says, and many such things you do. What are they doing? They're diminishing the law of God. They're elevating their traditions in the place of the law of God, trying to pass it off as obedience to the law of God, and everyone's impressed that they're such righteous people. That's what Jesus is saying. And that really explains both verse 19 and verse 20. That is a way of relaxing the command of God for the sake of their tradition. Well, I'm sorry, you know, Father, I could help you out. I've got the money, but I've devoted it to God. And uh, you just have to find the money somewhere else. Well, they elevate their tradition in place of God's law. They relax the commandment of God. And it's a sham righteousness that that must be exceeded by anyone who is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we want to be careful because Jesus here is not saying if you just do more works than they do, you're going to earn your way in. 
But he's speaking here of a real righteousness that comes from a transformed heart changed by the grace of God in Christ through repentance and faith in Christ. The superior righteousness is not the cause of entering. It is the fruit of salvation that illustrates that one is in the kingdom, that one will in fact enter the kingdom of heaven. But you see someone whose righteousness is merely outward, merely a pretense, merely a show for the approval of others, if that's all they have, they're not going to heaven. They're going to hell because God is not impressed. God looks at the heart and he sees if you have a heart that loves Christ and therefore obeys him or if you love the applause of men and therefore obey them and seek to please them and live in a way that gains you honor for men, but God sees through what you're doing. That's what Jesus is talking about here. We need a superior righteousness, which is another way of saying we need a real righteousness that is ours in Christ, yes, and on that basis we are saved, but manifests itself in outward obedience to the law of God. But not merely outward, but it grows from the heart. You know, man looks at the outward appearance, the Lord looks at the heart. So what does the Old Testament have to do with us? Well, it's two-thirds of the Bible. It teaches us how God commands us to live. It teaches us how God expects us to live. Uh, you can certainly carry a pocket New Testament if you like. Just don't forget the other two-thirds of the Bible. We wouldn't want to do without either one. Certainly wouldn't want the Old Testament without the New. But we also don't want the New Testament without the Old. Because if you don't understand the Old Testament, you'll never really rightly understand the New Testament. Because it builds on, it assumes the Old Testament. So whether you're reading in the Old Testament or New, and I encourage you to do that, and certainly we teach the Old and the New, and I try to preach from the Old and the New, we give thanks to the Lord that we have a Savior, we read about in the New Testament, who has fulfilled for us the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For the Bible, Old and New Testaments, thank you for the riches that we find in both of these parts of your word. We pray, O oh God, that you would indeed give us that exceeding righteousness that you speak of here, a righteousness that is God-given, a righteousness that is real, that grows from within and is not merely put on without. Father, we acknowledge that we sin against you. But, Lord, we know this, that even as we find sin in our hearts, we who know you also find in our hearts the desire to be obedient, truly obedient, inwardly obedient, even when no one is watching, because we know you are. So we pray for your forgiveness. We pray for grace to live as your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.